You're listening to the Unmute Podcast with Maisha Cherry. Welcome to the place where philosophy and real world issues collide. Hello, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. This is the place where I have the opportunity to talk to diverse philosophers about the social and political issues of our day. In this season, and in celebration of the release of my new book, The Failures of Forgiveness, which will be released this September by Princeton University Press, I talk to people who have challenged my thinking about what forgiveness is, its limits, and its powers. If you are wondering how to deal with conflict, relationships, or how to rebuild and repair your world, then this season is for you. In this episode, I talk with Benjamin Brewer, who is a postdoctoral fellow in philosophy at the University of Toronto. We talk about what the political thinker Anna Arendt thought about forgiveness, repair, revenge, and so much more. Hello, Ben, and welcome to the Yummy Podcast. How are you today? I'm doing good. I'm, you know, staying cool here in Southern California. <laughs> yes, it is so hot. So hot. But I'm just glad that we're still alive and we get to have this wonderful conversation that I'm look, so looking forward to. Yes, me too, Maisha. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm really looking forward to it. We have been pals for a while, but I don't think I've even asked you this question on a personal level. How did you get interested in, in philosophy? I was one of those nerds who already like in high school knew that I wanted to go to graduate school, but I thought that I was going to write, I thought I had it all planned out when I was like 18. I was going to major in English. I was going to do a PhD in English and I was going to write on like William Faulkner. Um, and then I got to college and first semester I took a class with Ramona Ilea, shout out to Ramona at Pacific University um, on, it was called Ethics and Society. It was kind of an applied ethics class. And okay. I really loved that. And then I was like, okay, I'm going to double major. And then I took this class second semester uh, with Adam Arola, shout out to Adam, um, which was on, uh, I think it was called Late Modern Philosophy. And we did Hegel, Kant, and Marx. And then I was like, oh, no, 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 it's philosophy for me. And um, so, yeah, that's from then on, I just, that was, I still took a lot of literature and I still work sometimes on literature. But uh, yeah, since then, it's just been taking all the philosophy I can. <laughs> so you are... One of my uh, friends who fall into the continental <laughs> category. <laughs> yes. And, 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 and given that, you know, there seems to be, quote unquote, a divide between continental and the analytic philosophers. And, you know, I always find it fascinating because I just realized that although all of us are philosophers in our friendship group, um, because we come from two different, quote unquote, philosophical traditions, I really don't know a lot about the people that you all study and write about. And I, I think that's kind of vice, vice versa. So I'm looking forward to this conversation because I'm obsessed with a particular topic that is forgiveness. But there's a particular figure that I don't really know anything about that I never took any classes about because of my analytic training. So I'm looking forward to this conversation that we're going to have about forgiveness, but it's about NRN and forgiveness. So I wonder, first of all, if you can, you can tell me, tell us, who was NRN and what is it about her work and her mind that drew you to her? Yeah. Um, well, I'm always happy to talk about Hannah Arendt. She's one of my absolute favorites. Um, and I don't normally go in for a lot of kind of um, 
thinking about philosophers by way of their biographies, but hers is so interesting and so relevant to her work, so bound up in it, that I think it's okay. worth kind of sketching that out a little bit first. So um, she was born to kind of a progressive, secular Jewish family in Germany um, in the early 20th century in what's now Hanover, Germany. But very quickly, um, they moved to Königsberg, which is, of course, where Kant lived. Um, and then she studies um, with kind of a who's who of uh German philosophy at that time. She studies in Marburg with uh, Martin Heidegger, in Freiburg with Edmund Husserl, and finally does her PhD in Heidelberg with Karl Jaspers. Um, and she famously had a love affair with Martin Heidegger uh, while she was his student. There's a whole library of books about that if you're interested in that. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. Um, but she's arrested. So she uh, does her dissertation on Augustine. And then in 1933, She's arrested um, for conducting research into the state of anti-Semitism in the early days of the Third Reich, and she's arrested by the Gestapo. They're held for a few. She's held for a few days, and then she and her mother, when she's released, flee to France, um, and she spends the rest of the 1930s in France working on Jewish causes and with kind of um, Jewish activist groups there. And then in 1940, uh, as the World War II is coming to France, Hannah Arendt, along with all the other German um, Jews, I mean, German people in general, but it included German Jews who were living in France, get rounded up and put in an internment camp for enemy aliens. And then when France very quickly, of course, falls to the Nazis, uh, in the chaos of that, she's able with some other people to escape from that internment camp. And then in early 1941, she finally gets on a ship to New York where she spends uh, the rest of her life. Um, and she lives in New York and writes and publishes and teaches, although she never takes a tenure-track position. She always maintained this stance as a kind of uh, public intellectual. But she takes uh, short-term positions at basically every important university in the United States, uh, but perhaps most famously at the Committee for Social Thought um, at the University of Chicago. So um, anyway, I'll also say this. If you're interested in Hannah Arendt's life, um, or Hannah Arendt, Hannah Arendt, either one's fine. There are a couple really great movies about her. Um, and the first is a documentary called Vida Activa, which I think is from 2014 or 15. Um, and Vida Activa is the German title of, I mean, it's a Latin phrase, but it's the German title of her famous book, The Human Condition. And then the okay. second is a narrative film starring um, Barbara Sukova, who's an amazing German actress, um, starring her as Hannah Arendt. And that's directed by Margareta von Trata who's done a series of wonderful films about German women intellectuals, including Hildegard of Bingen. She's got a new one coming out about Ingeborg Bachmann, the poet. Um, so anyway, if you're interested in Hannah Arendt's life, there's, there's two really good movies you can go see about it. So in terms of what drew me to Hannah Arendt, um, I would say there's something kind of intoxicating about her writing. And it's this way that she has of throwing out an observation or a claim and sometimes it's not even a full sentence. It's just like a, yeah, like a throwaway remark. But these, she has this way of dismissing kind of received opinion or the things we think we know about things um, in this way that's absolutely counterintuitive. And sometimes these observations are even blasphemous. Um, but she'll say them as if they were obvious to anyone who had thought about the problem for five minutes. And you kind of can't, there are these observations you can't unread once you read them, even if you disagree with them. They kind of, they hit you like a ton of bricks, you know? Uh, but on a deeper level, I think where that comes from, and I'm not the first to observe this about Hannah Arendt, um, is this kind of, she has this relentless drive to understand the world 
there's a, a famous interview she did with Gunther Gauss near the end of her life where she says the phrase in German is ich will unbedingt verstehen it's like i want absolutely to understand right and the way that she does that is she always begins from some concrete historical phenomenon in the world but she thinks through its conditions its implications its history in a way that allows her to kind of see it anew uh, or to unsettle some of the sedimented or cliche ways that we've come to think about that phenomenon. So she's able to take a kind of distance from the historical world and think through it, but she never loses sight of it. It's always what she's working with. And I think that's what makes her thinking really powerful. It's also where, you know, she goes wrong sometimes, and she certainly did. It's precisely because she doesn't take distance or understand her own assumptions. But more often than not, when she's really good, it's really the thinking is just kind of electric in its insightfulness and its concreteness, I think. I wonder if the the interview that you were citing is is one that I watched on YouTube. And in this particular interview, she I think the interviewer called her a philosopher. Mm-hmm. And she yeah, that's the one. basically denounces that title and said that she's more of a political theorist. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I bought her kind of distinction. And I just wonder, what do you think of her? Yeah, I mean, also, that's a very funny, you know, in that in that interview, that's exactly the one. Um, that's a very famous moment where he says, you're a philosopher. And she says, no, I'm not. And then he says, why aren't you a philosopher? And she says, well, I'm a woman, right? And she says, right. like, I'm very old fashioned. And I just don't think that, you know, whatever. And she says it with this wry smile. Um, mm-hmm. But Hannah Arendt was not a feminist by any stretch of the imagination. So it's kind of, a, it's one of those weird Arendt moments where you don't know if she's being cheeky or what. But um <laughs> Anyway, yeah, and she says she's a political thinker. And I think that there is something profoundly philosophical about Hannah Arendt, and you can tell she's steeped in that training. But I think what she's getting at, that I I see what she means, is that there is a kind of commitment to the historical reality of the world, of thinking through concrete historical phenomenon as they appear, rather than simply building a coherent system of concepts or clarifying ideas that I think does make her something more like a kind of difficult to define philosopher. She calls herself there a political thinker, right? She likes that phrase of a thinker rather than a philosopher. Um, And I think that also has something to do with that question of concreteness that I find so compelling about her. How does she define forgiveness? So Hannah Arendt's definition of forgiveness is... uh, both very dense and short in this little passage in the human condition and also famously rich and kind of complicated. So I'll try to give a a definition of her definition and then I'll try to unpack it and then maybe we can come back to the definition. And please, oh, we we will. Please be gentle with me. Like I said, I'm just a little analytic philosopher. (laughs) (laughs) I'll try. So, I'll, yeah, I'll try okay, not to go okay. full on like a uh, you know absurd uh, German abstract stuff. Okay. <laughs> okay. So, okay. so she says basically, this is the quote that I want to you know kind of start from in the human condition. She says, "Forgiving is the only reaction which does not merely react but acts anew and unexpectedly, unconditioned by the act which provoked it, and therefore freeing from its consequences both the one who forgives and the one who is forgiven." And so at its most basic level, I think, for Hannah Arendt, forgiveness is a kind of radical political act in which one actor interrupts what would otherwise be a kind of cyclical, almost natural chain reaction of revenge by recognizing that the forgiven party, the person you are forgiving, is not reducible to their past deed, 
That is, you free them from being totally defined by the consequences of their actions. So what forgiveness really does is it unexpectedly opens up a future in our kind of living together that is not totally determined by the past. And it's really important for Hannah Arendt that this is a forgiveness is a way that we act spontaneously rather than reacting passively or kind of automatically to harms that we suffer as a consequence of other people's actions. And so in other words, forgiveness is one of the fundamental ways uh, for Hannah Arendt that people express their freedom in the public realm. So um, I imagine that's also still a little bit abstract. So I think the um, really helpful things to understand here is that Hannah Arendt has a very idiosyncratic and rich but strange kind of notion of what politics is and what the public sphere is. So I think the most important thing is that the political life for Hannah Arendt is defined by the public realm of action, by which she means those words that we speak and the things that we do that reveal who we are. They reveal our character to others, right? Um, And she distinguishes that from labor, which is just the kind of things I do to sustain my biological life, and Uh, work, which is the production of durable objects, right? Um, Action has its end purely in itself, and it's just this kind of mode of expression of who we are, right? And so, and it includes both words and deeds, right? Um, And so as, as human beings, in other words, we have the capacity to reveal who we are by acting and speaking in the midst of other people. And the character or the who that we reveal through our actions is not reducible to like objective sociological qualities or facts about us, right? We're singular, each of us. So another way that she, the word she coins to kind of capture all of this is what she calls plurality, which she takes to be a kind of existential condition of human life. And as she says, um, human plurality is the basic condition of both action and speech, and it has the twofold character of equality and distinction. So, On the one hand, each human being is irreducibly unique and thus equal in their individuality and distinctness. So each human being is not simply like um, a token of a type uh, and not simply one homo sapiens among others. Uh, As she puts it, we're not just something individual, but someone unique. So that's on the one hand, there's this kind of distinction, right? And we're all equal in that distinctness. But on the other hand, no individual exists alone. So um, excluding, I don't know, day after tomorrow, extreme post-apocalyptic scenarios, nobody inhabits the earth alone. So to exist is to exist among others. And it's with and among and through these others that we reveal who we are through our action and speech in public. And action at its best for Hannah Arendt is when we undertake to begin something, to start anew, to bring something new into the world into the kind of social and political life of the world. With that in mind, if we come back to the definition of forgiveness, um, to forgive someone is an expression of this capacity for action. It's the capacity to begin something anew, to open up new relations in our life with others. Nothing, she thinks, is kind of more natural or automatic than to take revenge on someone who wronged you. But forgiveness is the response that bucks that kind of natural tendency. Uh, We might scare quotes around natural, I suppose. And Arendt will even go so far as to say that forgiveness is the miracle that human beings are capable of. And she here talks about um, that Jesus is, she says, the one who discovered the importance of forgiveness in human affairs, right? Um, And so in this sense, this is a quote from the human condition that I'll, this will maybe come back to our our definition. This is another way to put it in her words. 
In this respect, forgiveness is the exact opposite of vengeance, which acts in the form of reacting against an original trespassing, whereby far from putting an end uh, to the consequences of a misdeed, everybody remains bound to the process, permitting the chain reaction contained in every action to take its unhindered course. In contrast to revenge, which is the natural, automatic reaction to transgression, and which because of the irreversibility of the action process can be expected and even calculated, the act of forgiving can never be predicted. It is the only reaction that acts in an unexpected way and thus retains, although being a reaction, something of the original character of action. So that's the kind of fundamental thing for, for Hannah Arendt. It's the way that in political life, we interrupt. It's one of the ways we interrupt the kind of chain reaction of revenge and vengeance for the unintended consequences of people's actions by starting anew, by beginning again, and recognizing that they're not reducible to that, that they have the capacity to be something other than what their deeds have revealed in the past. What does this, this beginning again look like? And I, and I, mean, I can imagine it looks very different in different contexts, but does she give any, any clue about the nature and the content of that, that beginning anew? Yeah, I mean, she wrote a book, uh, famously, uh, a book called uh, On Revolution, uh, which is kind of a, com a comparison of the French and the American revolutions in a certain, I mean, a kind of philosophical, historical look at revolution, right? And one of the things that she notes right at the beginning, this is one of those great examples of something Hannah Arendt says offhand that makes you like, whoa, is that the word revolution up until the modern age always referred to like the cyclical revolution of the planets. It didn't mean something new. It meant precisely the eternal return of the same, right? But her example of um, beginning something anew is like the foundation of the American Republic and the French Republic. And then she traces out ways she thinks that each of those run into problems. And she famously has a certain kind of uh, preference for the American Revolution over the French Revolution. And so, but that's an example for her. That's a way of, of that's an example for her of people coming together and starting something new in the public realm. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cite something from the human condition. So Arendt writes that harming others through our actions, quote, is an everyday occurrence, which is in the very nature of actions, constant establishment of new relationships within a web of relations, and it needs forgiving, dismissing, end quote. Why is forgiveness necessary, this need forgiving? Why is forgiveness necessary for political life, according to Iran? And, and, and I just wonder, you know, you used that term before, political life, political life, and it makes me think that she's only thinking about this in the context of politics, and I just I just wondered that if you can clarify for us what is meant by political life and 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 why is forgiveness necessary for it? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, this is uh, a big one. So, OK, so I think <laughs> um, <laughs> the the this quote is, is perfect. Right. So because forgiveness for Hannah Arendt is one of two acts or actions that are not just a part of political life, but are like part of the very infrastructure of political life. One is forgiveness and the other is promising, making promises. Right. So the reason that uh, forgiveness is necessary for political life, and then I'll give an example of what I think we might think about this that I hope will clarify political life. Okay, so at the most basic level, Hannah Arendt is deeply aware of the fact that we are finite beings. We don't act or speak in conditions of kind of perfect knowledge. And importantly, we never control the consequences of our actions. And we often can't even predict what those consequences will be, much less what those actions will come to mean in history, right? In, in the public realm. And so we're finite creatures, right? 
but at the same time, actions are always, as she says, irreversible. Uh, even if you didn't intend to harm someone or you didn't fully understand the situation or the web of relations you were entering with your action, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube when it's right. done, right? Um, and so the the problem she's imagining here is that one of them is the kind of chain reaction of revenge, right? Where you act and something happens. Actually, okay, let me stop and just give the example first. And maybe that'll help okay. before we get into this. Okay, so the example that I tried to think of with this um, was imagine that you uh, are one of the people who in the early 20th century supported the prohibition of alcohol um, because like on kind of feminist grounds, right? The idea was that um, by prohibiting the sale of alcohol, you would be uh, saving women from domestic abuse at the hands of like drunkard husbands, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that's that's an example of like action in Arendt's sense. It's like advocating for things in public, you know, political action in that sense, right? It doesn't often mean like revolutionary violence, right? Um, it means things like that, like participation in the public sphere in a kind of democratic way, right? Um, okay, so you advocate for the prohibition law on that basis. And that's the what you intend to accomplish, right? Is to make women's lives better, right? What you actually end up doing through prohibition, right, is uh, increasing kind of binge drinking as a behavior by forcing it underground and you give birth to the modern form of organized crime in America, right? Mm -hmm. um, neither of which are things that we think of as very good kind of uh, feminist outcomes, right? So the question for Hannah Arendt is, let's say that, you know, you're someone who was harmed by the creation of the modern mafia through the kind of prohibition, right? Do you then think that all of the people who advocated for prohibition on feminist grounds should be kind of like utterly excluded from the public sphere because they've shown that they can, they can't be trusted, right? Or do you take revenge on them and say like, how dare you, you know, you did the right. So, and, and her point is that political life can't go on unless we're able to recognize that in the wake of someone's action having kind of misfired, right, or them having acted without understanding the situation, we need to be able to kind of let that go and reintegrate them and think of them as someone with whom we can act again in the future, right? So because you never know how things are going to turn out, there's this, you know, Hannah Arendt is always in conversation with a few different philosophers, and one of them is Kant. And you can see a little bit of this in a kind of standard deontological kind of Kantian ethics, right, where Kant doesn't want to hold people responsible for their actions because they're unforeseeable, right? The consequences mm -hmm. of their actions. And that's kind of the same insight Arendt has here is it doesn't make sense to hold people utterly responsible for the consequences of their actions, right? Because those are often unforeseeable radically, right? And forgiveness is the way that we can both acknowledge that harm was done and still be able to like move forward with people who were the causes of that harm, right? So she says forgiveness is like, uh, I think it's the, the redemption from the predicament of irreversibility, right? Mm, um, mm. And so that's why it's necessary for political life, because we're finite creatures, right? And we don't ever act in conditions of perfect knowledge. And we certainly never control the consequences of our actions, you know, in the way that, I don't know, it, you would have to be God or something to do, right? So one might think, well, is, is, if forgiveness is necessary for political life, does that include... The household, does that include friendship relations? Does that include the relationship that you have with colleagues? Right, is, right, is, right. Are those domains under <laughs> the political life domain? So in Hannah Arendt's kind of very 
um, this is a thing that a lot of, of course, um, a lot of scholars have taken issue with her over the years. I think for Hannah Arendt, the household in particular, the family is certainly not part of political life. And I don't know that she, I don't think she would say that there's no forgiveness there or there can't be forgiveness there, but she's just not interested in that. She's interested in forgiveness as it helps, it kind of happens in public, right? Um, mm-hmm. So that's one thing. I mean, something more complicated, like a like a, a workplace situation, right? There, that can be quite a political, right? Because those are oftentimes issues. You know, you can imagine a, a colleague in a department having advocated for some policy. Yeah, I think that her kind of forgiveness certainly makes sense there, right? Those are ways that we act in public, right? Um, but the household, private life, uh, she thinks is not what she's interested in talking about, and she thinks that fundamental errors of all Western political philosophy since Plato to understand the political sphere through an analogy with the private sphere. Interesting. So to think that the king is like the father, right? That kind of basic move um, of Western political philosophy. She thinks once you start from that point of view, you have already uh, screwed the pooch, as they say where I'm from. You've messed everything up. You can't even, you'll never get anywhere thinking if you begin from that analogy. So she sometimes goes, I think, a little bit too far or she's too hard about making this distinction, right, between the public and the private. So many think that if you forgive, you let it go. While others, like myself, think that you can forgive and still hold on to it. You can still forgive and endorse punishment. Now, you've already alluded to some claims that Arant made about revenge, but it seems that Arant thought that the alternative forgiveness is, is punishment. And I just... I just wonder if you can explain this a little bit more. Why does she think that the opposite of forgiveness is punishment? And I also wonder if you can tell us what is the relationship between forgiveness and punishment for her? Yeah, this is such a, like, I think, understudied moment of her her writing on forgiveness. Um, So I think one way to think about this is that she says that forgiveness is the alternative or punishment is the alternative to forgiveness, but by no means it's opposite, right? Mm. So she thinks that forgiveness and punishment have something profoundly in common, which is that what they are meant to do is put an end to that cycle of vengeance. So whatever legal punishment is for Hannah Arendt, it can't just be vengeance because we, inst- her kind of, as she says in um, an essay called that I love called uh, Personal Responsibility Under Dictatorship, uh, you know, the, the whole purpose of instituting laws is to, to find a way of stopping uh, through a kind of codification of punishments, a kind of endlessly escalating cycle of revenge, right? So in the same way that forgiveness is meant to interrupt that kind of automaton chain reaction of vengeance, punishment is too. Now, the difference between them, one thing uh, that you may have noticed as I talked is that Hannah Arendt almost uh, always talks about forgiveness as the response to things that were done in ignorance or unintentionally, right? Um, And so forgiveness has a kind of narrow sphere for Hannah Arendt, I think. It's not primarily, for example, I don't think she thinks of forgiveness as the response that is called for to violence, right? And a lot of times in contemporary literature on forgiveness, we think about forgiveness in the wake of kind of mass atrocities, right? or forms of kind of political violence. And I don't think Hannah Arendt thinks that way, right? I think um, I think forgiveness is about things like, I don't know, like the example I gave of the, the prohibition advocate, right? Mm-hmm. But violence calls for punishment, right? 
um, or uh, crime, maybe in that stronger sense, calls for punishment, right? But even but even punishment, right, um, has if it's going to be anything other than simply revenge, has to in some way aim like forgiveness at rehabilitating the criminal, making restitution to the victim, or like protecting uh, society from the criminal. Although, of course, it's easy because we live in the U.S. to forget that, like in most places in the world even things like murder aren't life sentences. It's very unusual, you know, our, our justice system that puts people away for life as if, you know, whatever. So even even punishment, I think, in most cases is often aimed at, just like forgiveness, reintegrating someone into kind of the life of the public life, right? And of course, I'm speaking here at a kind of theoretical level. I'm not speaking at all about the, the realities of the American, you know, justice system, right? But but so maybe the difference between forgiveness and punishment is that forgiveness is more spontaneous or unexpected in the way that she was descri- describing. And it has to do with unintentional actions, right? The consequences of unintended th- things we didn't mean to harm people, right? Whereas punishment is more kind of codifiable and it has to do with more serious infractions. It has to do with um, maybe things that aren't necessarily unintentional. Right. And that might actually be kind of violent. Whereas I, I just she doesn't say this explicitly, but I, I just don't think given the way that she talks about forgiveness, she's thinking about forgiveness as a response to violence, for example. Right. So I don't know if that helps clarify the distinction between punishment and forgiveness, but it helps. And I like that the distinction that you make, because it seems like there are some things that are actions that will fall under the category of the thing that it will be apt to forgive. Right. And which forgiveness is relevant. And then there's just some actions violence, mass atrocities, in which <laughs> it's just not something that forgiveness is apt to respond to. That punishment, for example, would be the, the, the response. So that gets me to my, to my next question. Is there a such thing as the unforgivable for a rent? Yes, absolutely. And this is one of my, I think, a really, really crucial um, thing for Hannah Arendt, right? So it kind of even follows from the relation between forgiveness and punishment. So right after she makes that distinction, between forgiveness and punishment, she says that it is a, quote, structural element in the realm of human affairs that men are unable to forgive what they cannot punish, and they are unable to punish what has turned out to be unforgivable. Okay, so there are, so if we think about this kind of like a scale, right, there's like trespasses, as she uses the phrase, the kind of biblical phrase, which are apt for forgiveness, right? And then there's, we might think of, you know, crime or violence, some kinds of violence that might be apt for punishment. But then there are, as she says, the extremity of crime and willed evil, right? And that, of course, the, the paradigmatic example of this for her is um, is the Holocaust, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the most striking example of this comes from her writing, her famous, uh, for some people, infamous book on Adolf Eichmann, both in Eichmann in Jerusalem and the various essays she published, a response to the controversy that that book provoked. So um, her famous uh, thesis in Eichmann in Jerusalem is that the gulf, there's a kind of abyss between the horror of Eichmann's crimes and the banality of the motives, that that abyss throws our received ways of thinking about punishment and forgiveness into disarray. So uh, maybe I should clear, if people don't know, Adolf Eichmann was considered the kind of logistical architect of the Holocaust. And he was tried in Jerusalem in the 60s. And that trial was a, a real turning point in uh, kind of memory culture around the Holocaust, but also around um, the role of Holocaust memory in the life of Israel as a state, right? And, um, and Hannah Arendt covered it for The New Yorker and wrote this book 
uh, called uh, Eichmann in Jerusalem, a report on the banality of evil. And her point there with the banality is not that Eichmann's crimes were banal. It's not that the Holocaust was banal. No, no. It's that his motives, as she says, he wasn't some Mephistophelian evil genius. He just wanted, as she thinks, uh, is he just wanted to, quote, you know, do his job well to belong to a group. She says in one interview in this quote that I absolutely love, a different interview than the one I mentioned earlier, she says, he wanted to say we, (laughs) right? He wanted Mm -hmm. to be part of a group. He just wanted to be a good little German and do his job. And it's the astonishing kind of unthinkable gulf between the banality of that motive and the absolute horror of the crime that for her kind of throws into disarray our received ways of thinking about punishment. Now, that doesn't mean that... So that would be something utterly unforgivable for Hannah Arendt, I think, okay. right? And so that's why, so even though she thinks that like they're kind of received ways of punishment, right? But remember that earlier I tried to say that forgiveness and punishment have this kind of in common, this kind of reintegration. And so because she thinks neither of those apply to Eichmann, it's not that she, some people accused her of trying to exonerate him or something, but no, it's because of this that Eichmann must hang, right? She's very clear about this and he is hanged and she supports that decision. And um, it's because precisely because what he's done is so unforgivable and so unpunishable that it just kind of excludes him from the, the realm of, of the political, right? And at the very close of the book, Hannah Arendt, this is one of my favorite passages. I was talking earlier about those amazing passages in Hannah Arendt that just hit you like a ton of bricks. This is one of them. She, she tells us what she thinks the judges at the trial should have said when they were justifying the death penalty. So she does this weird kind of thing of assuming the voice of the judges in the trial, right? And this is the whole last few pages. It's too long to quote, but this is the very final lines of the book. And I think they're worth saying in precisely this question. She says, let us assume for the sake of argument that it was nothing more than a misfortune that made you a willing instrument of the organization of mass murder. There still remains the fact that you carried out and therefore actively supported a policy of mass murder. For politics is not the nursery, In politics, obedience and support are one and the same. And just as you supported and carried out a policy of not wanting to share the earth with the Jewish people, people of a number of other nations, as though you and your superiors had any right to determine who should and who should not inhabit the world, we find that is, we find that no one, that is, no member of the human race can be expected to want to share the earth with you. This is the reason and the only reason you must hang. Right? So, to kind of unpack this a, a little bit more, I'll just end on this, is to say that what's so egregious about the Holocaust for Hannah Arendt is that it is a frontal attack on the very idea of plurality, that kind of fundamental existential condition that I mentioned above for her, right? The fact that we inhabit the earth with other people, we come into a world with people who are different from us and who we did not choose to be on this earth with, right? And that that is what enables us to have a political life at all is is the presence of these other people who are different from us, right? And and the crimes of national socialism were an attack on that very condition. And so therefore they they rise to a level of kind of unforgivability and um un, certainly unforgivability and even unpunishability for her that you know, I just love that line about uh, you supported a poli- and carried out a policy of not wanting to share the earth with the Jewish people and the people of a number of other nations. And so we find that no one sh- can be expected to want to share the earth with you, <laughs> right? That's like where you, um, 
you know, as as the phrase goes in the kind of late Wittgenstein for Hannah Arendt, you hit bedrock. You just hit a fundament that you can't get behind, right? And so therefore, you've really found something genuinely unforgivable in that kind of monstrous way. I mean, someone might take that and they might think, well, I can use that passage to justify the death penalty for anyone who murders just one person. Right. But I think the difference here, right, is that it's an attack on the very idea that we inhabit the earth with people who are different from us. So it's like about, notice here that it says, it's a, you of not wanting to share the earth with the Jewish people, right? Mm-hmm. And the people of a number of other nations, not just this or that particular Jewish person, right? Gotcha. And I think there is something here though. I think, you know, this is one of the things in Hannah Arendt that I find very relevant today is that I think she gives us a way of articulating what it is that makes hate crime and racist violence something of a different order than a regular mm-hmm. murder, right? I think this is the key of that for her, right? A murder, you might murder someone for any number of reasons, right? And they can be, uh, you know, whatever, right? For personal gain, for money, for hatred, you know, et cetera. But as soon as you start acting violently with the goal of eliminating an entire group of people from the face of the earth, you have done something, you've torn a hole in the kind of very fabric of the possibility of people living together on this planet, right? And that's what's the kind of radical radicality of that evil. I know it's difficult to kind of speak on behalf of a, of a thinker, particularly a thinker that's no longer with us, but I'm, I'm going to ask this question anyway. What do you think Arant would say about forgiveness in a present political moment? Yeah, I mean, especially it's, I mean, for me, particularly hard to think about uh, speaking for Hannah Arendt, who always was kind of the, said the unexpected and the, uh, you know, the uh, counterintuitive. But I'll say a couple of things, I think, that I think about a lot with her. The first of these, and, you know, God forgive me for uttering these two words, but I think that Hannah Arendt, for better or for worse, would have by now written a think piece in The New Yorker about cancel culture, <laughs> okay? And I think <laughs> okay. and I think what I mean by that is I think she would say that cancel culture is a kind of refusal of forgiveness or the attempt to define someone entirely by um, a past utterance, right? So um, Hannah Arendt, and, and I again, I think this, I'll show how I think this also points to some limits in her thinking. I'm not totally, you know, endorsing this, but I think this is what she would say. Because Arendt takes seriously that people often act and speak out of ignorance, um, that they step into the public sphere or a conversation without knowing what they're doing or talking about, as she herself famously did on several occasions. Um, and I think, you know, Anna Arendt would actually, there would probably be a hashtag about uh, her really uh, horrible this you? takes on this. This you? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Completely. There would be pictures of her essays on on Little Rock and on the civil rights movement just saying this you on all over Twitter, of course. It's X now, Ben. It's X. Oh, that's right. Excuse me. She would be Z-ding or whatever. Yeah. So she thinks that like, uh, you know, people often act out of ignorance and we need to be able to forgive that, right? But she does also believe that our actions and our speech reveal our character, right? So it's not as if we don't hold people accountable, but I think she would be worried that the way that old takes or political actions are brought up is problematic. And I think she would be deeply skeptical that, you know, quote unquote, dunking on people is a genuinely political form of kind of accountability in that sense. So that's my first kind of thing. I think, again, for better or for worse, I think Hannah Arendt would have like a spicy take about cancel culture somewhere by now if she was alive. And this is the second point um, that I want to say that I think points to maybe a limit or something in her account, right? Which is, I think that her account of forgiveness requires us to make judgment calls about whether or not people are acting in good faith, right? Whether the consequences of their actions were really unintended or not, right? Or whether they were really acting out of ignorance or not. 
Um, and it seems to me that today there are so many people in the political sphere who are precisely working against human plurality and who are doing so with a kind of mocking, bald-faced bad faith, like they're daring you to call them out on it, right? And this is one of the defining characteristics of a kind of the contemporary form uh, that racism has taken, I think, in political discourse. And so it seems to me increasingly difficult to take people seriously when they do ask for forgiveness sometimes, and much less to forgive them spontaneously. And I think they're like, especially for a kind of vehement opposition to what Arendt would call uh, plurality. So I guess this is my little thing about the limit of her take. I, I guess, to be honest, I find Hannah Arendt's reflections on the banality of evil and the fact that kind of the most horrific violence can be unleashed by the inability to think in anything other than cliches is perhaps even more apropos of our present I guess what I mean is I hope her thinking of forgiveness will become really urgent and central to our political life in about 10 or 15 years. But right now, I think we also need to draw on some other parts of her her thinking that are much more about the role of bad faith and the banality of evil in public life. So, Ben, do you know you share a name with one of the directors of Everything Everywhere at Once? I did not know that, no. Have, have you seen the movie? Yes, yes, I have, yeah. So so why, why do you think it's the greatest movie of all time? You have not told me that it's the greatest movie of all time, <laughs> but I want you to tell me why you should think that it's the greatest movie, one of the greatest movies of all time. You know what's extra funny about you bringing this up and about also bringing that I shared the name with the guy that I didn't know? is okay, so when the Oscars happened this year, I was at this little cocktail bar right next to my house called The Wolves, The Wolves downtown mm -hmm. LA, great little cocktail bar, check it out. And I was down there, uh, my husband and some friends of ours were down there and we were sitting at this booth and then all of a sudden, within like 20 minutes, the bar got, I mean, just packed like I have never seen it in my life and these people were so rowdy and like crazy and normally it's a very cute, quiet, kind of classy little cocktail bar. I was like, what is going on? And it turns out it was the cast party for Everything Everywhere All at Once. Oh, wow. And and they had just won all those Oscars, so they were going crazy, so that was really fun. Anyway, sorry. You could have you met the director. <laughs> I know, I know, right? I could have met my, my, my name twin, I guess, but uh, who knew? I didn't know. I guess, you know, okay, here's what I'll say. I... I really did love that movie. I thought it was a great movie. But I think what I liked most about it was a kind of commitment to visual chaos in a way that I thought they pulled off really well. Mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of times, it's not that it's easy, but I think you know a lot of times what we expect from really good movies is that they'll have to be like really beautiful and serene. And that was certainly not that. And I thought they pulled it off well. I don't know. I have to say, Maisha, I don't know that I would say that it's the greatest movie of all time, but that's what I loved about it. I said one. I said one. Oh, you said one, one of. Oh, okay. okay. Yes, one of. One okay. Of. Yeah, sure. Great. So you study thinkers who were trying to offer insight into one of the darkest eras in, in human history. And I just wonder, given the content of what you read, what you study, what you write about, what do you do not to be depressed after research? <laughs> well, sometimes I just am. I mean, uh, <laughs> I mean, it is. It's yeah. It's heavy. So heavy, Ben. I mean, remember? I mean, I went to your house and and looked at a Hitler book. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's heavy, heavy, heavy. <laughs> the stuff that you read. Yeah, exactly. It is really. I mean, I have to say, the worst part of it is when you're actually trying to read the like the the really horrible Nazi thinkers themselves because you're doing right, some research because right. you just want to take an awful shower afterward. You know, you want to bathe in like acid after that. Just get the feel off of you. No, I mean, I think there's a really delicate kind of problem i'll put it this way that if you're when you're working on questions of kind of violence and its aftermath that on the one hand you have to be grounded in an experience of having been kind of affected or touched 
by the content. You know, you have to, you can't treat it just like you're studying something exceedingly scholastic or abstract, right? right? But on the other hand, you do need to be able to take some distance from kind of being overwhelmed by pathos, right? Which can oftentimes, I think, lead to more to cliche than to kind of insight, right? There's one of my, I think one of the people who does this the best, who I'll give a shout out to, uh, she passed away a couple years ago, is Ruth Kluger, uh, who's not, I don't think has read much by philosophers, but she was a, a survivor of Auschwitz and she wrote a book called Still Alive that I think is one of the most astonishing feats of being able to kind of think about these things with clarity and insight without losing sight of them. But at a more concrete level, I mean, just at a very banal level, sometimes I try to really sit with the depression or the heaviness when it hits you, right? But then other times I, I'm worried, worried that I'm tempted to kind of wallow in it. And so I try to just do something else for a bit, you know, having dogs helps. And I know that you can always rewatch episodes of 30 Rock. That always helps me too. But yeah, especially like when I watch films and stuff, or if I'm reading something before bed, I have to always budget like half an hour to watch like an episode of 30 Rock after. I can't go straight to sleep after watching like Showa or something. You know, it's not, not a recipe for being very functional. So you speak multiple languages. Any quick tips for those trying to learn? <laughs> yeah, totally. Okay, so the two big things I have, I always tell people, well, I'll make three. I'll start with the third one, which is just uh, delete Duolingo off your phone. It's not doing anything for you. It's absolutely nothing. Instead, there's a great website called Verbling, like V-E-R-B-L-I-N-G. And you can there hire someone to do one-on-one -on -one lessons with you, like over Zoom. It's a lot more affordable than you probably think. And that is really the only way to like actually kind of make progress. You know, I think that's my first thing. My second thing is, I think once you get to a certain level of capacity to be able to have some basic understanding of hearing a language. The thing that helped me a lot um, when I hit a kind of plateau in my German where I felt like I could read it pretty well, but I couldn't really speak it or have conversations with it, you know, was podcasts. I just started listening to tons and tons of podcasts in German. Um, and of course, at first, you won't understand a lot. It'll just kind of you know wash over you. But you will start to get a feel for just the kind of the rhythms and the structures of how it's spoken. And it'll make you more actually comfortable in that language, right? So podcasts, it's great. And especially in a lot of languages, there are podcasts geared at language learners, right? So like um, in German, here's a good long German title. There's one called Langsam gesprochene deutsche Nachrichten which is okay. slowly slowly spoken German news, does what it says on the pen. It's just someone reading the news headlines in a very slow German. In French, there's um, Journal en Français Facile, which is uh, the news in easy French, right? Um, and so those are great. Yeah, and I don't have one for Spanish, uh, but Radio Ambulante is, very, is a great podcast I like a lot in Spanish. So yeah, podcasts. It's just like... It's the old thing of... I, I used to hear stories about how taxi drivers... People would ask taxi drivers how they learned the language that they of the country they moved to and they're like oh i just listen to the radio all time all the time and i think that's the modern version of that is podcasts i highly recommend that ben thank you so much for this conversation i learned so much thank you thank you maisha this was so much fun for more access to the unmute podcast subscribe on itunes or head over to the website at www.unmutepodcast.co there you can get more information about our guests, participate in giveaways, as well as learn more about people, books, and concepts mentioned in today's episode. Until next time, remember that your silence will not protect you. Listen, think, speak. The world will be different as a result.